welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. Today I'm joined again by Marsha Lane Dungog, Director of Private Client Services International at Anderson, who was a guest with us on episode 36. And she's also joined by her colleague, Al Nunez, who is Managing Director at Andersons. Now, both of these very special guests have come a very long way from San Francisco, uh, in particular to give you a further background on Marsha. Marsha is an international tax lawyer, providing cross-border tax advisory, tax compliance and controversy services for high net wealth individuals, businesses and US citizens living abroad. She has extensive experience in international, federal, state and local tax matters in the US, with over 20 years of private practice in the US and Canada. She is a member of the California and Michigan Bars, the US Tax Court and US Supreme Court. Marsha is also a barrister and solicitor in Canada, a public arbitrator for the United States Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and an instructor for the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Marsha is a prolific author and frequent speaker on international tax issues. She has published tax technical papers which have been presented to the Tax Writing Committees of the US Congress, the US Treasury Department, and international conferences in the US, Canada, and Australia on the US taxation of foreign pensions and retirement, cross-border estates and trusts, US international withholding and compliance enforcement initiatives, and US state and local taxes for foreign businesses. Alan's background as Managing Director specialises in tax reporting for multinational public and private corporations, tax accounting, uncertain tax positions, transfer pricing, compliance and planning. Also joining us today is Simon Calabria, Director from Webmartin Consulting, who does a lot of work in the international space. So I'm just delighted to have the three of you joining us today. We're going to be having a discussion about doing business in the US. But before I get into that, the four of us have something in common. Arguably, yes, uh, undeniably. And I need to explain this to our listeners. Now, when the, uh, the name was presented to me in terms of where you work, Anderson, and then this morning I've now seen your business card... Anybody who has a background at Arthur Anderson will be very familiar with the very big, solid timber doors that were a feature of the, the firm back in the, let's call it the 80s and, and early 90s. Now, Simon worked at Arthur Anderson in Melbourne, as did I. And Sydney. And Sydney as well. Thank you, Simon. So the four of us are all ex-Anderson. Well, we're still current and we're just yeah. having a family reunion, apparently. <laughs> we are. And well, I'm just amazed that the doors are here. So please, this needs a quick conversation because yes. <laughs> I thought the name was gone. Yeah, I worked for the firm. I, I must confess that I did leave well before right. it all fell apart. The the firm, the, the, many of the clients, the staff got taken over by what was then Ernst & Young. So how did this survive? I will leave it to Al to tell the story. Sure. Well, uh, Mark Borsatz, our current CEO, was a longtime partner at the firm when it when it disappeared, and he took twenty three of his colleagues and left and took his private client services group and, and his clients, several hundred of the staff, and they formed Wealth Tax Advisory Services. Now, it must have been a very rushed exit because that is not a very eloquent name. The shorthand for it was WTAS, which sounds a bit like a radio station. But uh, they worked with HSBC for about five or six years and then they left the HSBC umbrella, became their own firm, still with the name Wealth Tax Advisory Services. Uh, in 2013, they realized the, the cachet of the Anderson name. At that time, Anderson had been vindicated by the Supreme Court. The and department. can I ask the legal status of the name Anderson throughout all this period? There was always the remnants of a partnership that were sitting there that held the last of the assets, which were really the name and the training center located in Illinois. Of course. The Q Center. The Q Center. The yes, Q we've all center. done time. It's still Arthur Anderson. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and so uh, it, Mark was smart enough to license the name, and we became Anderson Tax. And the, the cachet of the name has grown and grown, and so in 2019, we shortened it to just Anderson. And the dolls have... have- 
persisted. They've survived. The doors are coming back this year. So Mark has always wanted to have the doors in every location. So starting in the U.S. this year, uh, all of the locations will have the doors that everyone knows and loves. Very special. Please come see us in San Francisco and hold the double doors yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. So look, amongst our listeners, some of you may be ex-Arthrandison yourselves and you may recall them um, uh, with fondness or, or perhaps not fondness of your, your former days there. So uh, I just thought we'd go down memory lane for a brief moment. So... Over to the agenda for today, we're talking about doing business in the US. And I really want to bring Simon into this discussion because you're advising on this increasingly. Yeah, I think uh, what happens is the, uh, the world is getting smaller and smaller. And sm- it used to be the advent that there was only big business that did, um, did business cross-border, but that is, that is not the case. Um, whether it's digitalisation or whether it's just the easy movement of people, um, and logist- world logistics is getting um, getting quicker, uh, but more and more we're seeing smaller and smaller businesses are asking questions about doing business in foreign countries, and typically one of those foreign countries that comes up if someone's trying to grow from a, a you know our little island over here and they're trying to grow and get um, customers overseas, they look to the US, and and that's really where the advent of it starts. Uh, it's then very interesting at, at how how clients or potential clients would come to you and ask ask the question they often come in just thinking I want to do business in the US I want to set up a, a company or even worse if they come to you and say I'm, I'm, I've got customers in the US and they told me I had to have a company and so the first thing they do is they've got an, an Australian structure let's assume that's an Australian corporate structure an Australian company here and then suddenly there's a, a US company in the fold and, uh, and, and that's where we start by looking at, okay, let's, uh, let's unpack this. Let's have a look at who, you know, who's selling to who, how, does it, how do the taxes work? And, and when it, that it, has already occurred, Simon, who typically owns the shares in the US company? Well, you, you don't know because this, that's another question again, and I've got a live example at the moment. We've been working for 12 months on the assumption that the shares in the US company were, be, were held by the Australian company. Um, only to find out that they hadn't been, they'd set it up, they got told they had to set it up, they were trading, they were trading for three years, they were filing a nil tax return over there, only now to find out, um, we've dug deeper and found out that that US tax return was actually owned by two individuals. So so you can't make assumptions when you're inheriting a structure. You've really got to look at the whole structure from the beginning. And check the documentation. And, and, and again, you don't make assumptions, but you do need to look at um, what the impact of that structure is going to be. Obviously, the commercial side is um, first and foremost. But when you then say what are the tax implications under that commercial structure, very, very quickly you can end up with an effective tax rate to the individual owners in Australia of, of profits from the US being subject to certainly, you know, we don't want it to be any more than 47% our top marginal rate, but it very often um, moves very quickly into the 50% and can go up to 75%. So um, the, the double tax, uh, potential for double tax under those sorts of corporate structures can be, um, if not done right, can be a very high impost. And simplistic question, why doesn't the DTA play a big enough role in this? Okay, so DTA, short for the double tax agreement between Australia and the US, I've always thought the the naming of that has always been a little bit cynical. It's a double tax agreement. Does that mean it's there to ensure there is double tax or is that there to ensure <laughs> that, um, that it's anti-double tax? So I've always had a little bit of a funny thing about that. We call it a double tax agreement. Surely the uh, the idea behind it is to minimise the effect of double tax between the jurisdictions. But really the treaty is just a code for um, each country has their own domestic rules and the treaty is a code for who has priorities or, or, or who has precedence. Tiebreaker rules. Well, they're not, they're not all tiebreaker rules, but they can act as that. So really it's just who's got first bite and who doesn't, and it gives some sort of demarcation. But uh, and, and the treaty is very important when you're looking at it, certainly from business to business, but equally as important is then the whole advent of typical um, cross-border commercial arrangements, transfer pricing, um, and you know all the things that come with that. So uh, perhaps you can set the scene for us. Um, an overview of the American system as it pertains to doing business there. 
Sure, sure. So uh, the American system is, is two systems. You have the federal system and the state system. They're very, very different. Uh, and then the states themselves have uh, sub-jurisdictions underneath them. So uh, let's stick with the income tax system for now. Uh, combined, there's probably about 7,000 income tax jurisdictions in the U.S. And that drills down, you know, not only at the state level, but beneath the states. You have counties, you have cities, you have towns. Some of these cities, you know, uh, San Francisco, the annual budget is $12.3 billion. They get it from someone. And so, there is, you know, it, they're out there to, to make sure that you pay your fair share if you're doing business in their state or their jurisdiction or if you have clients there. So, Al, that's, that's an interesting concept. For here, we have, from an income tax point of view, we have our federal income tax or our corporate income tax, if you like, that layer, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And that's I mean, we have an individual income tax when it flows through. So if you've got a corporate, privately owned structure, corporate structure, or an entity structure might have tax, income comes out of that structure, there might be another layer at individual level. When, when we, whenever we see this and we go to the US, we, you know, the headline number is a US federal corporate tax rate, potentially, or the, or the progressive rates. Uh, and we'll, that sort of anti-double tax that we're trying to, or minimising the double tax, we're trying to layer in is to the extent there is US federal income tax, we then have to layer up what state are you based in? What city are you based in? Because then you've got state, city, local taxes. Like we're just talking income taxes now, for which the treaty doesn't provide any protection. So the treaty applies at the federal level, but not at the state level. And that comes as a dramatic surprise to a lot of folks. Um, you know, but most most time when folks want to do business in the U.S. and they're coming from a foreign country, they're loath to have to file a U.S. tax return individually. And so most of what we see coming in is coming in the form of creating a new U.S. subsidiary in a corporate form. Very few people, unless they already have to file U.S. tax, want to elect a flow-through entity. And with the new change in the tax rates, we're finding that when we have, you know, San Francisco is the land of startups. Everybody wants to have a big exit and, and leave it behind. When the private equity firms come in and they buy into these things, you know, years and years ago, they, they always set it up as a partnership. Now, when you look at it, because the corporate tax rates are so low, combined Fed and state in California is about 27 and a half. So what, just give us world. a bit of perspective, the federal corporate tax rate in the U.S.? 21%. California is 8.89, but you get a deduction on your federal return for state taxes paid. And so you know, it's, it's around you know, 26, 27% on average, say, in total. And so now we're back to a state where we were probably in the 1950s and 60s, where the highest individual tax rates were around 90% and the corporate rate was 35. And so people use corporations for deferral mechanisms. And now we're back to that because the individual rates at the federal are about 37%. California, the highest rate is 10.3. You put payroll taxes on top of that, you're north of 50. So leaving money in a corporation tends to have a bit of uh, appeal to folks. Because there's a bit of a rethink going on in Australia too. Um, We've historically been sitting the last 20 odd years on a 30% rate. And the government pushed a couple of years ago to try and reduce it down to 25. Mm. Uh, Our Senate, our upper house in the parliament, wouldn't accept that for all companies. They said, we'll give it to the smaller ones, but not the bigger ones. So we've ended up with a divided system, which along the way of that legislation going through got even further complicated because they decided that not only should the lower tax rate be confined to smaller companies, but only those that only have business income and not passive income. So you only get the lower tax rate, which is currently 27.5%, if you're under 50 million turnover and you don't have a high proportion of passive income. Now, our tax rate's about to move for those companies to 26% this one July, and then one July 2021, it'll go down to 25%. So we've got a couple of moves coming up in that rate, further reductions. This has big implications for our franking system because you, of course, don't have imputation in the US. No. So we pay taxes, of course, in Australia at the corporate level. We pay a dividend out of the post-tax dollars. We gross the dividend back up to include the tax. Mm-hmm. Then it's all assessed to the individual shareholder, and then they claim the, the, a credit for the tax that's been paid by the company because otherwise we're ending up with double taxation at the individual level. And we do refund excess franking credits if your tax rate happens to be lower than the corporate rate. So in the US, it's, it's quite a different system. Yeah, I mean, it, number one in the US, the lower tax rates apply to passive income. Passive income is favored because uh, 
the wealthy have a better lobby than the folks that are out earning wages. Is that interesting? Because in Australia, they do tax business income more favorably than passive income. But generally, folks that own a corporation, they take funds out of it in one of two ways. One is as compensation for any personal services they provide to the corporation. And secondly, is in the form of dividends. And the dividends, when they come out, are taxed at a reduced rate. So the dividends would be taxed at 20%. Whereas if you were you know, drawing a salary of a quarter million, you might be paying 37% and payroll taxes, etc. So you know, it's much. Uh, there's, there's very little incentive to draw a salary to, to cover it. And you've also, a bit like our private investment arrangements, if you're an individual with investments, they would be passive income is taxed more favorably than earned income or employment income. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, and, and I'm walking into a dangerous world here because I'm a corporate tax person. I, I, I mentioned earlier, <laughs> it's been a couple of decades since I even prepared my own personal tax return because it is so complicated. You know, it, it they send it to my desk. It weighs about a pound. You know, it's a good inch deep, and that's just the federal. Then I have all the states that I have to file because oh, everywhere the partnership file, everywhere the partnership operates, I have an obligation to report to that state. Does the U.S. have an equivalent of our fringe benefits tax? Uh, you know, I don't know what the fringe benefit tax okay, is. Okay, let me explain. <laughs> so in Australia, if an employer provides non-cash benefits to staff, so they mm-hmm. pay for their school fees or they provide them with a motor vehicle or they pay for their entertainment or whatever, it is not accessible to the employee as if it was paid to them a salary. It's a tax that is paid by the employer. Now, often it will be built into a salary package, so that liability effectively gets passed on to the employee, but it is an employer tax, and they have to file returns, and they have to pay the tax and and be subject to a whole separate tax system. And I believe that FPT generates something like less than 1% of all tax revenue in Australia. So it's a lot of administration for a relatively small amount of revenue. So the government is always trying to drive public policy through tax law. And so to the extent they like the fringe benefit, we like you to provide a subsidy for parking, for public transportation, for childcare. Those are generally taxed favorably, meaning they're not taxed at all to the individual. To the extent they don't like it, they deny deduction to the employer. So for example, if you are providing meals on site, which in San Francisco, every company does, the employer is not going to get a deduction for that. So they don't charge them an extra tax for it, but they don't give them a tax deduction. Yes. Yes, I can say. Whereas our FPT basically allows the deduction, but Correct. then layers it with the FPT on top. Which is more compliance. Yeah, that's right. Look, I've got to say, many years ago, I was um, speaking at a, a session up in Sydney, and I was talking about some rules where you take money out of private companies and how we've got these tax rules that deal with that. And uh, someone will appreciate the comment, but uh, this accountant said to me, well, you know, what's Div 7A? And I thought, oh, so where have you been hiding all this time? Because it's been around for a while. <laughs> and he said, I've recently arrived in France. From, from France. And we don't have anything like that. In fact, we don't have FBT either. And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, in, in France, if a, a business provides a benefit to a, an owner or a worker, then it's just taxed to them. It's accessible income and that's the end of it. And I said, that's so simple. We could get rid of our Div 7A rules. We could get rid of our FBT rules. I said, how well is that complied with? And he said, oh, pretty well. You can go to jail if you don't do it properly. <laughs> Sometimes we just make it so much more difficult for ourselves. We do, we do. You know, and, and it's it's a wonderful thing that they try to drive public policy through tax law, but the unfortunate thing is that everyone's idea of what is good changes every two to four years in the US. And so Well it's politically motivated, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yes. So so the recent recent changes really in the last few years, the US has driven federal um, corporate tax rates down yes. um, to to provide an incentive at that corporate level, I guess. Uh, then the US also has um, some concepts that are still foreign to, to Australians in the sense of you can set up a company, but you can set up a look-through company, and you mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, those sorts of structures, and I know New Zealand has, a, has a, an entity called a look-through company. The US tends to sit in the format of an LLC um, filing open. Um, Which Simon is a limited liability company. So it's still, it's incorporated as a limited liability company for all purposes, as I understand it, other than for federal income tax. Uh, in which case it's a look through. So it'll look through to the shareholders and, and that, um, let's call it an LLC. Mm-hmm. That LLC file, uh, uh, filing as an open return 
uh, doesn't actually have to file a return at all. It'll look to the shareholder to actually do the compliance. It's a wonderful uh, entity. It's kind of like the Swiss Army knife of entities. So, uh, <laughs> so the default classification under federal tax rules is that an LLC would be disregarded. Uh, it wouldn't even be considered to be an entity separate and apart from the owner. But legally it is? So commercially and legally? Yeah, so legally it is. It provides some liability protection in that respect. But uh, you know, if, if I were to open up a shoe store in the form of an LLC, it would be reported as a sole proprietorship on my individual return. Now, if I invite someone else to participate in this, um, then it would be the default classification would be a partnership and everything would flow through. But if I don't like that, I can file paperwork and there's a small window of time to do it once I form the entity that says, you know, we've thought about it, we've liked to be treated as a corporation. And so very flexible. Now, that election stays in place for five years. So it's um, not irrevocable. It's not irrevocable, yes. Um, but with some structuring, and you can stack these things and then merge them into another. So, you know, it, it, it's really just, it, it, it's a barrier that's easily overcome. So, for, so from an Australian, so from someone outside the U.S. coming in, um, you know, and Australia now has rules foreign hybrid rules, so we treat the, these uh, an LLC or these kinds of entities in other jurisdictions as a foreign hybrid, and we can typically, we can treat them as uh, foreign hybrids, can be treated as if they're a partnership from an Australian point of view, mm -hmm. but if we layer that up with who is the shareholder, so an LLC, so a simple example might be uh, an Australian entity wants to buy some property in the US. So we'll do that's so a passive investment or, or an investment capital investment first. Properties in the US, we know it's got a connection to the US. There's no question of permanent establishments or branch. It's going to be taxed in the US. We know that. They might choose to use an LLC. Our question becomes: the LLC is not filing a return, so whoever owns that return is going to lodge the is going to lodge whoever owns that LLC is going to lodge a US tax return. So if that's me as an individual. I'm now going to have to file an individual tax return in the US. I'm not a US citizen. I'm just an Australian citizen, tax resident. I don't even step foot over there. Now I'm somehow subject to a, a US... Um, you just bought property. Someone right. put it in an LLC, a well-meaning real estate agent possibly, because we love LLCs. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you're getting called by the CPA saying it's time for you to file a US tax return. Let's Correct. get you an individual tax, tax ID number so that we can even file a return. That could yeah. cost a heart attack for somebody who's living in Australia in this beautiful, humid weather, you know, nice moisturized pores. <laughs> Suddenly you're going to tell me I'm filing a US tax return. That is a very common outcome. Yeah, and, and, and that's fine so what we look at this we look at this from a if we're looking at it from a corporate structure or from right. a, an entity structure point of view rather than if it happens to be the individual that's fine often uh, from an Australian point of view we, we may want a layer of either for asset protection purposes we might want to put another entity in there so if we were to put for example a company and therefore, now it's the com an Australian company owns the LLC. Right. It's the Australian company that now lodges a US tax return, which okay? which brings uh, the corporate system into play. However, that's not a very good structure. So, Absolutely. from an Australian point of view, we've now got an Australian company, a disregarded LLC, but it owns property. So it's now got a permanent establishment or a branch in the US, right. our corporate rules then say if you've got an Australian company with a branch in the US, the income to the Australian company is what we call name, non-assessable, non-exempt. And so what happens is we know we're paying US tax. Let's just assume it's the 21% corporate tax in the US. Let's Hopefully we found a state that didn't have any state income taxes. We pay $21 uh, in corporate income tax in the US, we file a return, no problem. When we look at it from the Australian viewpoint, we've got $79 left over, $100 of profit, $79 left over. There's no foreign tax credit because it's non-assessable, non-exempt. And then when that individual wants to pull that income out, it's then subject to our top marginal rate, well, let's say up to our top marginal rate of 47 cents. The effective tax rate on that structure is 60%. Or thereabouts. So it's it's not ideal. And so coming back to if you inherit a structure, you could have inherited a structure where someone set this up and inadvertently they've ended up with a, a double tax regime. The treaty still works perfectly. It's just that 
the mechanisms don't work. So we then look at different structures to try and flow through that US tax, not for any, not for any avoidance issue, just so that we've paid tax in the US, we want the ability to drag that credit through. So I have a question because this came across in one of our structuring um, with, with an Australian company, actually. So classic structure LLC owned by an Australian company. Of course, we wanted to create a PE blocker, right? So Australia LLC files, you know, a, a form 8832 entity election, let, let us be taxed as a corporation in the U.S. So we can at least avail of the treaty, the, the, the treaty rate between corporation to corporation, dividends up. And then a, a, an interesting thing um, that we came across was apparently because the management and control of the <laughs> U.S. LLC that is now a corporation was in Australia, that it was actually an Australian resident corporation for Australian tax purposes. So yes. this is a new concept from our perspective for corporate tax because it's a Delaware LLC. Okay, so it's it's it, it's not a new concept, but it's certainly, and this, this comes out of a, a, a tax case, a recent tax case mm-hmm. a few years ago called Bywater. And so Bywater, um, and so if we go back to corporate tax residency um, from an, our Australian domestic definition, actually looks at saying if you're incorporated in Australia, you're treated as an Australian tax resident as a company. Same as the US. Correct. We've also got a second component to ours. If you're not incorporated in Australia, but you carry on business in Australia and have either central management and control in Australia or um, majority shareholder ownership, then uh, what would be a foreign entity, a foreign incorporated entity could adopt Australian tax residency status. So it's interesting that you then say we've got an LLC. It's 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 checked as check the box um, checked as a corporation, closed, checked right? as a corporation. So let's just call it, we've got a US company. Right. But that US company is owned and controlled by, by someone in Australia. Yeah. It's got a director um, that does all things from Australia. Exactly. So basically, the intention, and and this is another thing that comes up with clients, the intention is. I want to set up a a foreign incorporated entity. My intention is that it's a US tax resident. It pays tax in the US and it's going to build its wealth over there. It might accumulate that wealth. And when they choose to, they want to pay a dividend back to Australia. Simple. That that central management and control. So as soon as you say there's central management and control, um, there was a long-standing, there's a ruling that the ATO had put in place which effectively said if the activities of that company were only in the US and if the only reason that, uh, if, if the only activities in Australia were central management and control, they would, they would um, look over that a little bit and say, despite there being central management and control, we'll treat that company as not carrying on business in Australia. What Bywater did was went through... So, I might just um, interrupt there and I'll just go do a bit of spill on Bywater. Yep. Um, just to give you some context, Marsha, Bywater Investments was a High Court decision a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it stems around a, and this is all well documented, uh, an accountant called Van der Gould, based in Sydney, who had set up companies in Samoa, Bahamas, UK, amongst others. Very active. Very active, Very yes. Active. These companies were... Uh, basically share traders on the Australian stock market. Mm -hmm. They were making profits in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So the turnover had to be high hundreds of millions into the potentially billions of dollars. And the argument was that these were non-resident companies and incorporated overseas, central management control overseas, not subject to tax here. The director was a, this is all very United Nations, Australian-born lawyer, now a Belgian national and lives in Switzerland. Wonderful. Okay, keeping up? Yeah, keeping up. And this director, Peter Borges, was based in, in Zurich. I think it was Zurich, maybe Lucerne, but certainly Switzerland. And on paper, his signature was on documents. But when they brought him out to Australia, he couldn't explain the documents that bore his signatures. He couldn't explain the transactions that these so-called companies of his had entered into. And this ultimately went to the High Court. And the conclusion was that he was a puppet director Mm -hmm. and that the one calling the shots, the controlling mind, was actually van der Gould back in Sydney. And so even though these companies were incorporated overseas... And they carried on business in Australia, which was accepted because they were dealing with the share market here as right, traders. Right. Uh, the central manager control was actually deemed to be out of Sydney, 
and therefore they were taxed as residents. And you know, big win for the ATO, and the government was said, thank you very much, we'll take the revenue. And a big headache for the rest of us. <laughs> but what followed from that yes. is the ATO went back to its old residency ruling for corporates and said, look, this has been the view, but now we're going to update the view based on this decision. And what's emerged is this finer point of what makes a non-resident company an Australian resident. And as Simon correctly said, you've got to have carrying on business in Australia, which is in our tax law, and you've got to have the central management and control in Australia. What the ATO is now saying is you could carry on a business anywhere in the world, but if the central management and control is in Australia, we will treat you as if the business is carried on in Australia which ticks that second requirement, and now you've got a tax resident. Right, so we have dual resident corporation now. And what's now happening, the Board of Taxation is currently, which is one of our bodies that reviews and assists the government and reviews law, they're looking at this at the moment. And we're waiting on their report because this is really interesting stuff where has the ATO pushed it too far? Mm -hmm. That's the question being asked. So the the good news at the moment, so uh, I think uh, the ATO... Uh, having having a high court decision which went through all the precedent um, previous common law on central management control and corporate tax residency, it, it is a masterclass to read the, the case on all the old, uh, you know, going back, you know, 50, 80 years on corporate tax residency. I think the ATO had nowhere to go other than to say, well, this is what it is and we have to abide by what the, the high court now says. The inadvertent outcome of that is structures where the full intention was to have foreign incorporated companies doing business in a foreign country and despite there being some direction nowhere near the you know the overt anti-avoidance type provision that that the case was there to catch Mm. Um, inadvertently they now could potentially um, have a completely different outcome so you've got this you could potentially have a structure where it's set up in a way to flow through the foreign tax credits so that whatever tax we're paying overseas we might be able to get a credit for in Australia suddenly gets uh, undermined or undone because we've now got a foreign corporation or, or sorry, we've now got an Australian corporation filing over there, and we, we you know, the treaty now comes into yeah, play. And, 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 and a far more complex arrangement. We've also got Australian directors trying not to step over this line of saying, oh, we've now got central management and control in Australia because that will cause the whole business to be deemed to be carried on here. Flying overseas to have board meetings literally for a few hours and then flying back into Australia to say, well, we didn't make the decisions in Australia. Right, which, of course, now, you know, starts putting them over the border into individual taxation as we talked about in the other episode because now you're forcing an Australian company that never intended to have central management and control in a US company to now physically try and sever that and yeah. as a result, expose their individuals. Yeah. Well, they're, they're trying to make sure their companies yeah. are, in fact, resident yeah. overseas and not resident in Australia. So we don't want to be making any decisions in Australia. We want yeah. to be making them offshore. So you want to have U.S. employees or U.S. directors based in the U.S. Well, so that's one thing. But what, what has happened, there's been a transition phase. So since Bywater, there's been some updated rulings have been issued and there's a uh, what they call a practical compliance guideline issued by the tax office. And it has allowed now, it was up till um, up till uh, 2019, they've now extended it through to, uh, I think it's 30 June 2021, mm. for companies where this might have caused an inadvertent change in residency for them to get their house in order. Great. So, so what they're saying is those who've relied on the previous... The previous view adopted by the ATO, if you uh, take measures to fix that up, we'll allow you. We won't change. We won't change what was the status quo previously, so that the central management and control. Uh, they're allowing. They're effectively allowing Australian directors to get their house in order to to fix up where so that they don't have an unintended outcome. That's it. Al, can I ask you about multinationals? It's getting a little bit beyond the typical client base that we would come across. <laughs> but the big three, Google, Apple, Microsoft. Yes. The world has moved on and there's a lot of talk now of this digital tax. And it's all about making sure that income is taxed based on where you know profits are being made. But where is a profit being made if there's no longer a factory and a plant and workers who are turning up at a physical location? Um, you, know, you just need to look at some of the bottom of web pages or emails that you receive from these really big companies. And we've got very creative countries around the world that are housing these business operations. 
Everything we've done moving intellectual property around and trying to attribute the income to where the intellectual property resides is looking at a sea change now because of OECD looking at everything. Um, let me give you a very simple example. Uh, you have Yelp here. Is, should Yelp, the value of Yelp be attributed to where the IP is housed? Or should the value of Yelp be attributed to where it has enough momentum that it's a market entity? You know, it, it's really the number of restaurants and the number of people that are using it, that feedback loop that they're giving, you know, checking in and giving ratings that are creating the value within a country. And so countries like India uh, that are being cut out of the tax base they're taking that latter argument. They're saying the IP is not the value. The IP, that's not technologically groundbreaking or anything. This is just standard technology now. The, the value is where the customer base is and where that loop comes in. And that's the argument that they're taking. I think transfer pricing in the next five to 10 years is going to be dramatically different than it's been in the past. And the planning that we've done is going to be very, very different. On what basis? Well, the, it, it's really, you know, they, they say economists, you can line them up, they never reach a conclusion. Yes. And, and so that's what's happening. You know, the, the, their thought about where the value actually resides in the supply chain is moving. And, so, and, and the supply chain itself is changing. It's not anything tangible. It's really just this popularity of a platform and finding enough folks to give it momentum and to get it up and running so that the synergy takes off and more and more people you know, use it. The value in India, they'd argue, the value is not the IP. The value is the fact that these restaurants and these customers are here. And therefore, we want our share of the tax. It's a very interesting issue that's coming up. We just had a, um, a, a partner meeting uh, last year, and uh, some of the partners from India were there, and some and from Africa. We have quite an extensive network, and um, it, it became a very heated discussion. Transfer pricing. It, it, when you you forget how indignant folks become because they're not feeling that they're given the proper bite at the apple. And everybody wants a, a bite of it. Yes, that that you know every all the acronyms we have, you know, about base erosion and related party transactions, you know, and all this stuff. You know, it, it, it really countries feel that they've been treated unfairly. You know, when they're outside of, of you know EU, US, Canada, North America, Australia, uh, China, the big players. You know, they just feel like they've been left behind. Because there's interesting a, a case that um, is potentially being appealed, and I say potentially because in this particular case, which I'll mention in a moment, the commissioner lodged his appeal six minutes after the deadline. So there's now a separate proceeding to see whether he's going to be allowed more time to actually make the appeal. I so, would hate to see them allow that because you know <laughs> a deadline's a deadline. Well, this is what clients are saying <laughs> to us. Deadlines until until we need an extension. Yes. <laughs> yes. If the yeah. taxpayer was six minutes late, would they allow them more time? I don't know. So. The case in question is Glencore, and everyone knows Glencore. It's a, a major multinational. This particular issue was about the sale of copper concentrate from the Australian subsidiary to the Swiss parent company. Okay. And the commissioner alleged, and this is normally transfer pricing is about I'm paying too much for a particular good or service. But, of course, it can work in reverse where I'm selling something for less than what the value should be. Yes. So it can work in either direction. Yes. This was about selling to the parent company offshore. And the ATS saying, well, what you sold it for wasn't market value. Um, there seemed to be quite established markets that they were selling it in. Mm -hmm. um, look, the short version is that the taxpayer won before the federal court. And there's $92 million worth of tax at stake here. So it's not an insignificant loss for the commissioner at the moment. It's transfer pricing tax controversies. Um, the IRS tried hiring private law firms to prosecute their cases. And it did not end well because the private law firms, you know, they, they were very aggressive. And, you know, it caused a lot of ill will because people, you know, that people would say, that's my law firm. I can't believe you're doing that. Uh, it was against Microsoft. And you would think, well, that's, you know, take the gloves off. Uh, but it just was the public didn't like that. Um, but transfer pricing, um, you know, like, as I said, it, it, when you come to the U.S., if you're a small business, you have, you know, revenues of... You know, under a million, uh, you know, depending on what you do, it, it, you don't, people want the formal transfer price. We'd love to sell you a formal transfer pricing report. We'd love to sell you penalty protection. But most folks don't do that. They, they look, you know, they come up with a number. They say, well, it should be between, I've seen other folks, 8 to 12%, and they pick a number on there. And, you know, we, we, we have an educated guess, you know, and we'll say, you don't have any documentation, et cetera, but we know if it's within kind of within the range or not. But here's, here's the horrible part. 
because you don't have a transfer pricing report or any or a study, um, we have to attach a disclosure to your U.S. return that says you're not compliant. Now, folks get very angry when we put that on their return. They say, you're attaching a strobe light and a siren to my federal return. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're lodging with the government. Yep. But what they don't realize is that the government has, is overtaxed, for lack of a better term. They don't have enough employees to deal with all of this stuff. And so you have to reach a certain size and, you know, be, be, be out. The government has to really want has, to come out. Has to be worth their while. Has to be worth their while, yes. But where this raises its head is um, when you want to exit the business. Because usually folks, uh, you know, San Francisco is a land of startups. They want to build something, sell it, and retire. And so when you sell it, uh, you go through a due diligence phase. And this is what accountants love nothing better than to find other accountants' mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and so you sit there and the due diligence team from the big four comes in and they beat you up because they want to drive down the, trans- the, the, the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And so even though, you know, if, if you have, you've never been asked by the IRS in 10 years about your transfer pricing policy and, and you have something you're doing, you're trying to comply, um, maybe just barely trying to comply, they will come in and they will figure out, you know, well, you know, really, you know, maybe you have five, ten million dollars of potential liability here, you know, because and, and that's the technically correct answer. And so um, that tends to be the bigger issue with folks, you know, it, be mindful of it. Try to do something. How dogmatic is the IRS about this? Uh, they have the big folks to run after. So what they tend to do is look at the larger companies. Um, you know, look, IRS agents, keep in mind, you know, there is a you know, scoring system when you file returns and they, they are rated for their audit potential with an algorithm and then they're sent back to revenue agent groups out in the field. Like we effectively do, I don't know if they use algorithms and such, but they profile taxpayers as to risk. That's one avenue they get them. The other avenue is, and I, I, I've talked with the railroad agents, they tell me they do this. They go, oh, I was reading the newspaper. I found that really interesting. <laughs> Many sources. And in fact, you know, the IRS a few years ago started launching, uh, you know, the, the IRS uh, compliance campaigns. And they are looking at international taxpayers and international corporate returns that are filed. Um, and they're specifically making it into a catch and release kind of program because yes. of the high audit risks. And so you can go on the irs.gov, see the campaigns by the IRS LBNI, and you will see what specific types of forms that have been filed that the IRS are looking specially into because they see that's a high risk exposure. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Yeah, so, you know, if, if they know you have a functional subsidiary, something that must be earning a profit because of what it does in the U.S., you know, if, if you're earning a profit, et cetera, and especially make sure you have your transfer pricing adjustments recorded in the general ledger. There's nothing worse than seeing, you know, a book loss and then there's an adjustment to push up the income for transfer pricing because then you can kind of back into everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the saying pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered really applies here. Um, and, and if you, you know, you, you should always try to comply with the law. You should always try to, you know, to, to have a study done and be reasonable about it. Um, but when the IRS comes in, we do them often after the fact. And so it becomes a negotiating system. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it, it, in, my, in my experience, they tend to be reasonable as long as you are trying to be compliant. Is your position that transfer pricing is no longer the domain of the big boys? Yes. Or just the domain of the big boys, I should say. Yeah. Well, well no, it, it's not. I mean, it, that doesn't. You have to remember the states are always there as well. So California, mm-hmm. we love that the, the state of California loves to challenge people in transfer pricing, and you may not get hit at the federal level, but let's say you have some type of sales tax issue or transfer tax. So issue. within your U.S. borders. Within the U.S. borders, so so California may come in. I think California is is a much more effective auditor than the federal government for businesses that operate in California, and there's information sharing agreements between the two, and so. I have a client right now that has a a federal issue that the IRS shared the final results with the state of California, and the state of California said, welcome, we're here to help. I think uh, you you make a good point, both Robin and Al, is transfer pricing from an Australian perspective has for a long period of time been the domain of the big end of town. Yes. Uh, Australia in the last... 10 years has probably tried to make life easier for the smaller and small and medium businesses and they did have um, what they referred to as simplified transfer pricing um, documentation or simplified and they're trying to make transfer pricing easier for simple transactions and for smaller businesses. 
Now, the, the problem is uh, in practice. So uh, often uh, you, would, you might see a, a multinational organisation with a parent overseas. That parent may or may not be in, in the US and you'd have a, one subsidiary in Australia. And that subsidiary could be effectively in startup uh, for a number of years, and it's supported heavily by the US, by its parent, let's say. And then after a number of years, they become more sufficient. And so there's a lot of support coming in. So they would otherwise be in substantial losses. Those losses would diminish. And then as they start making profits, they want to actually take a lot of the profits back over to the US. And, that, and that's normal. Okay. And there's a couple of uh, comments I, I would like to make in terms of what we see, both from a technical and a practical viewpoint. One is documentation, and two is real price negotiation. So I think most businesses aren't going, most clients we see, or most Australian, whether it's a subsidiary in overseas or whether it's a, an Australian group trying to do business overseas, and let's call it in the US, they are trying to allocate a fair and reasonable profit to each side of the, uh, the border. Uh, but ultimately, if it's an Australian business, they ultimately want a lot of that profit to come back to Australia. It's then the US trying to you know, increase what they think they should get. And that becomes, uh, you know, that becomes important. So, but I'll br- real price negotiation, I think they are genuinely trying to work out how much profit do I need to leave in the US and how much profit can I bring back to Australia? So if everything, so the, you know that typical functions risks analysis, if most of the functions and risks are in Australia, they want most of the profit to be here. But interestingly, it could be the federal federals are saying you're small, nothing to see here. But a state where the warehouse might be might yes. be saying, well, hang on a minute, you can't leave a small piece of profit. You know, this is a big piece. We want a bit more now. Uh, the second part, though, is documentation. And what we find is, and so it's an important point, so if it, give, if it gives you penalty protection in the US, it's a very similar concept here. It also gives peace of mind. Mm. And I've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of clients where they are trying to do the right thing and are trying to build their documentation. Unfortunately, the documentation path is built around the structures for big business. So you've still got to adopt the same practice of Reviewing, reviewing what you do, how you do it, how have you priced it, what methods apply. And so there's a minimum amount of work you need to do to document that process. And it's not until clients have actually done that that they actually can have a proper conversation about am I charging enough, am I charging too much? And then it's a bit of that negotiation side. And we find folks going through that cycle, either either they're very attentive and they want to address it up front, and, and it is important to have all your intercompany contracts and memorandums of understanding in place and make sure that they're refreshed annually. You provide for an escape valve with true-ups, et cetera, uh, for prior years. And so we have that, that, that very conscientious client that, that gets everything done up front. And then we have the client that we picked up that says, I've done a great, I've just developed this great idea. You know, it, it's the best thing in the world. And then you find out, you know, well, my books and records for the past few years, you know, leave something to be desired because they're folk, they're business people. They're not worried about tax. And those are the ones who will come in and, and you know, we try to remediate, et cetera. But, but one, of, one of the best things you can do is to make sure you have all the documentation in place, the intercompany contracts, et cetera, because you need to have those in place to even have a start to, that you are being reasonably compliant. You know, and uh, it, it's, it's a much better conversation to have. And I feel much better when those are in place, et cetera. And I would say the one thing people always forget, interest is interest rates hard in a company transaction. People tend to, to get very abusive when they use intercompany interest rates um, because they want to take advantage of the lower treaty rates on withholding and take everything out in the form of interest. Uh, so with the new tax law, et cetera, and, and the limitations on interest deductibility and everything, a lot of that planning is changing. It's in flux right now. And so it'll be very interesting over the next few years. Uh, you also made a comment about from the compliance point of view where if they haven't done that study or done some sort of documentation that they you have to file, uh, you know, your bells and alarms, yes. non-compliant. Australia took a, has taken a slightly different approach to that. We've got, uh, let's say, it's a corporate entity. It's got uh, an international dealing schedule. Now, there are thresholds. There's a $2 million threshold in total transactions. And if you once you go above that, you then have to fill this form in. Now, in this form, 
same for big business, same for small business. Like, and there is a threshold, so we understand that. But that threshold is relatively low when you think about that two million could be buying a million dollars worth of product from a related Chinese manufacturer and selling one point one million dollars of product to a related entity in a foreign country. That's two million straight away. So there are cumulative uh, tests. So the threshold is 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 there, but it's low. In amongst that, it says for every one of those transactions, you actually have to nominate the extent to which you've done transfer pricing documentation. Mm. And so the very first thing is you can't even fill this form in without turning your mind to... And a lot of people will sit there and go, well, we've got an invoice and that represents, that reflects what we're charging to each other. I've got 100% documentation. But that's not what the question's asking. And so this understanding, and again, I'll go back to what I said earlier, smaller businesses are becoming much more international. It doesn't take much for them to trigger this. It, it forces a play. Now, when you then start saying to somebody, you've got an entity in the UK, an entity in the US, and you know somewhere else in Hong Kong or China or Singapore, suddenly you've got to go and get an advisor in each jurisdiction to do a transfer pricing input study to come back to Australia it's back in the domain of big business. It's big dollars to do those reviews, even at a simple level. So it's harder and harder to get that that level of compliance. Look, to wrap up, Al, um, any final comments on this discussion about doing business in the US? Yeah, I think there has to be very close coordination between your Australian and US tax advisor, the accountants and the attorneys, Um, lots of modeling. (laughs) But more importantly, you know, it it tends to cause ancillary problems like uh, when we last spoke with Marsha, you know, people going back and forth, they have a business, they fall in love, it's I can't tell you the number of Australian folks that I work with that their kids have U.S. accents. And so, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not just the business, uh, but, uh, you know. Life happens. Life happens, yes. But make sure that your professionals are all talking to each other. It's unfortunate when you you meet folks, you know, and you, you, you I meet new clients and they've been my client for five years and then they meet me, they introduce me to their, uh, you know, non-U.S. tax advisor. I find out he's been doing business with them the same amount of time. It's a shame we're only meeting now. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, thank you so much for your time, Marsha and Al and Simon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. I've been chatting with Marsha Lane Dungog, International Tax Lawyer and Director of Private Client Services International at Anderson from San Francisco, with her colleague, Managing Director of Anderson's Al Nunez, and Simon Calabria, Director at Bed Martin Consulting. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also get onto the Tax Yak team on email podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. It'll help to improve the profile of the show and we would love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to you joining us next time. <laughs>